We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. I haven't heard this much talk about balloons since my cousin's reveal party, but it was just a boy. Here, Scott Thompson. Oh, man. Good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton today. Uh, Linda Ronstad, number 47. Number 47 on Rolling Stone's top 200 singers of all time. Still not seeing any Celine Dion at uh, this moment. And how apropos, uh, it's so easy to fall in love as um, we watch from afar what's going on uh, in the Toronto Mayor's office. All right, uh, enough of that. Where were we? Uh, It certainly has been an interesting 24, 48 hours, 72 hours. Uh, However you want to uh, measure this, uh, it certainly is uh, an interesting time. Oh, by the way, locally, by-election to replace uh, Andrea Horvath. Horvath, of course, uh, stepping down as leader of the uh, NDP, provincial NDP, and ran for mayor and, of course, got in. Now that by-election to replace uh, her as MPP is uh, available. So uh, there's your local news. Uh, Down the street in uh, Toronto, they're trying to work out a budget. uh, And, of course, uh, John Tory staying on, he said, to finish the process. Although uh, you'll hear an interview in just a couple of minutes with Global News' Matthew Bingley, where uh, this could take a couple of weeks, maybe even like three. <laughs> so where is this going? Who knows? All right. So uh, what else we got? Oh, so anyway, yesterday on this show, I remember getting a couple of breaking uh, news alerts from, you know, because we're all plugged into all the media outlets out of Toronto. Uh, and City TV News was reporting that uh, Christia Freeland, along with Doug Ford and a plethora of other people, were trying to get John Tory not to resign. They were trying to get him to to stay. And then uh, it was fascinating watching today as uh, literally all the pr- reporters go to Christia Freeland to get her to comment on the story. And she basically says, well, this. I'm going to repeat one more time so people can hear me speaking in my own words. Um, And let me say, when I have something to say about my position, I have no problem saying it clearly myself. Um, In this case, the story that was published is entirely untrue. It is entirely inaccurate, and I am glad to have the chance to be clear and categorical on the record saying that. All right, so uh, that's about the record and the story after all of the dramatics. Uh, Here's what she said about the mayor of Toronto. Like very many Torontonians, I was very surprised even shocked by what we learned on Friday night. Mayor Tory admitted to making a serious mistake and to a serious error in judgment. He took responsibility for that mistake. He apologized for that mistake. And he took responsibility by resigning. That was the right thing to do, and that 
was the necessary thing to do. Thank you very much. All right, there's Christia Freeland coming out and saying that, no, in fact, she did not tell uh, John Tory to stay. Uh, Here's John Tory in the council chambers in Toronto trying to get the business of the budget done. Here's how it went. Why we were doing this work and what the work was and why it was taking so long and why it was so complex. And it is best to come uh, from him. Uh, because he is a person that has the credibility to uh, explain to people that work. Beyond being our go-to guy in the hard hat and to fix and develop our infrastructure, he's been a real champion of people. He's a strong promoter of the United Way. Uh, he's a member of the Champion Circle. For- All right. I guess when in doubt, put your head down. <laughs> just just keep on going. So uh, anyway, coming up next, we're going to have a, an interesting interview with Matthew Bingley from Global News, who is at City Hall, and as he characterized it, is going to be a very long day uh, and uh, tell you exactly what transpired this morning and early this afternoon as, uh, again, they try to get their budget passed. Uh, we'll talk. And here, you know, in the hammer, it's just a boring old by-election. It's just a boring old... Of course it's not. It's just not riddled with scandal, that's all. Uh, obviously, Andrea Horvath uh, stepping down as uh, MPP to become mayor and succeeded at that, and now her seat is open. So, you know, uh, it's not all um, um, uh, uh, whatever all of this stuff is. Sometimes work tries to get done. Uh, we'll get an update from Matt Bingley coming up in just a sec. Also, going to talk about uh, DeFasco going electric, but the need for clean Canadian liquid natural natural gas in order for that to happen and also out of the u.s and just when you're sort of losing faith in politics um uh, i wouldn't say she's a new face by any means but south carolina republican governor nikki haley has uh said that she is throwing her hat into the ring uh and running against trump in her own party he is also announced for the republicans to uh be the president saying we need a new generation of leaders oh my goodness how refreshing is that all right matthew uh uh, it looks like it's been quite a circus down there, certainly for the morning anyway. Uh, from what I understand, there were protesters coming in, so the whole thing was uh, had started late. Give us a bit of an update of what you know so far. Yeah, I, I, I can't say in the many years that I've been down at City Hall that I've ever actually experienced anything like this. Budget processes are, are always a little bit fraught with friction on... You know the the sides of councillors who are with the the mayor's office who who usually shepherds through a budget uh, of, of some nature uh, with with a lot of support. But this one, obviously, with the strong mayor powers, is much different. But you know the controversy aside from the the mayor's personal scandal, uh, this budget has already seen a lot of protest with the spending on uh, uh, the, the, the police budget as well as the hikes on the TTC and a number of other uh, a number of other spending measures where where a lot of people are saying that there's not enough spending on the social side of things and then you add on top of it again that that scandal that broke of course on Friday and it's just been wild uh, council chambers were cleared at least three times actually now as i'm speaking to you we were kicked out a third time after they had already barred the public from sitting through the rest of it one protester uh managed to uh managed to sneak through and just as we were finally getting to the actual budget questions before this was actually all going to proceed kicked out again until after two o'clock 
Wow. So uh, obviously, uh, as you alluded to uh, before the weekend, the announcement coming out that he was resigning due to the the office staffer affair and such. Uh, Then he, of course, staying on to to push this budget through, obviously, for the reasons you just said, it's a challenge. So he stayed on to sort of get it done. Is this going to happen? Is it going to be that easy? Well, one way or another, this is going to get done. Uh, There is you could argue that Mayor Tory doesn't actually even need his strong mayor powers to 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 push it through uh, because he really does have a lot of uh, sway when it comes to councillors who are faithful to him, uh, has the votes to actually push it through. So there has always been an argument from the get-go whether the, the powers are actually needed. Um, but this is Tory's budget. He has crafted it from start to finish under the new strong mayor legislation. It is considered his as opposed to in the past when they would have been staff presented budgets. So he has made the decision to stick around and to answer questions because it it, it truly is his. Um, There are a number of procedural uh, elements that could be at play that that uh, perhaps the veto or the uh, the override of the veto, which would guarantee Tory, if he does in fact intend to still resign, even though that we're now hearing that there are people in his ear trying to tell him to reconsider, if he is still under the if we're all operating under the impression that he is still thinking uh, that he is going to be going because he is going to live up to that resignation notice. Uh, it, he will still have to be here for quite some time, uh, at least uh, about 20 days or so after after this actually gets through. But the way that this meeting has unfolded, uh, like I say, it's it's now. Uh, well into the afternoon, and we haven't really had any motion on it. Uh, Council is going to have to meet well into the night to actually get this going. So you bring up a very valid point, and this came up the other day, that this, you know, everybody thought, well, Wednesday, then it's a done deal. But as you're alluding to, this is going to drag on for quite a while. You said 20 days, possibly. Yeah, the the way that the process uh, goes, you know, after, after this is presented, there is a certain... A period of time where councillors are allowed to take a look at some of these uh, and uh, potentially, well, the mayor could veto some of the changes if there are actually any in there. There's uh, about a 10-day period for, for that and then another uh, another uh, 15 days or so after that to sort of have the limits on, on overriding that veto. So it, it all gets very procedural and, and quite frankly, a lot uh, very confusing, just sort of flying by the seat of our pants at this moment. It, it certainly seems that he's obviously not going anywhere soon. What about this movement to keep him there? Yeah, it's it's in, in, an interesting one. There's v- quite significant uh, names that are now being bandied about uh, that, that have uh, spoken out in, in support of him. Uh, the Speaker, uh, which, which isn't entirely... Uh, surprising that that she would be supporting him he's been quite supportive of her uh but but a number of chairs of uh, several committees the chair of the ttc uh his his housing champion councillor brad bradford who's also you know in the mix as a potential for uh someone who could run in a by-election but he's you know we just scrummed him a short time ago he's he's very uh very supportive of the mayor staying on a lot of people think that uh that that it's the wrong move to resign even the premier has said that he he doesn't want uh, a quote lefty to uh get on to uh city council and and 
you know, screw everything up in, in, <laughs> as far as his agenda is concerned. Uh, the, uh, the Deputy Prime Minister, though, uh, we heard her in a scrum today feeling quite the opposite of it. Yep. So, uh, you know, what, will he stay or will he go is really been the question that, that we've all been asking down here this week. Well, I'd ask you, Matt, what you anticipate for the rest of the afternoon, but really, it's like a crapshoot, isn't it? Uh, a long day. That's probably <laughs> the, the most accurate I could be. Uh, it, it will be long. It, there, there is a potential for more chaos. Uh, who's to say if somebody else uh, sneaks through uh, with the security? Uh, but the way that this has sort of gone on this morning, I, you know, you'd have to think that the sergeant at arms is going to. Uh, security is, has been very high. I've never seen it this uh, this heated down here before. I, I wasn't here for the uh, the, the Rob Ford years, mm-hmm. but. Uh, uh, it, it's very reminiscent of the conversations that I'm having with some of my colleagues down here in the press gallery. All right, Matt Bingley with us, City Hall reporter, Global News, and uh, keeping an eye on what's going on as everything transpires this afternoon. Matt, thanks for the time. Good luck. My pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, we remember, and I've been raising this concern, my goodness, for a long period of time. And first of all, let me start by saying I think this idea is absolutely fabulous. And I think that this is a perfect example of how uh, cleaner uh, Canadian liquid natural gas can get the world off of coal. We remember a few months ago at DeFasco, they were announcing that uh, they were going electric, getting rid of the coal coal and uh, electric arc-fired furnaces, all that sort of thing. I remember asking at the time, is there enough electricity? The answer was yes. Uh, and and nothing was mentioned about a 14-kilometer uh, natural gas pipeline that was going to be needed to bridge the transition uh, between the two. And now, of course, it's a headline, and some seem actually stunned about this, which I have a hard time understanding because if you know anything about the transition of one to the other, which you hope most people who are who are advocating for either side of this would know what what that involves and what the process is. So uh, to talk more about all of this and the pipeline that uh, is going to help in this transition, Atif Kabirzi is with us, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University, President of Ecometric Research Limited, former Undersecretary of the United Nations, and with us now. Atif, thanks for your time. Hope you're well. I'm well, thank you. Always a pleasure to be with you. So, Atif, I remember when this announcement was made and the Prime Minister was standing up and saying uh, very proudly, almost gloating, you don't see this in Russia, you don't see this in Germany, you don't see this in Europe. And I'm thinking to myself, well, they don't have Niagara Falls, Pickering, or a clean supply of natural gas to supplement it all uh, like we are blessed with and the rest of the world is asking for. Uh, and there's always been no business case for natural gas. Is this not the perfect case for natural gas and your thoughts of why it's coming up now look uh, first of all we have to understand that the steel industry is a very key industry and its requirements are quite consistent with what hamilton uh, could look for and uh, to broaden its base and to expand this economy but 
There are also issues here that steel is not anymore the only industry. Hamilton economy is quite diversified and there's mm-hmm. so many other aspects. The other thing is that the one you're talking about, yes, absolutely, natural gas is a lot cleaner than coal. And if you move off coal uh, to a cleaner uh, source of energy, that's all the best. But is this the cleanest? Is this the future? The future, many are arguing, is to get off fossil fuel. Fossil absolutely. Fuel is yeah it's linked directly to climate change and the issues of how an economy can decarbonize and move to a more sustainable future again uh, how come this it seems that people are now surprised at this um is the natural gas pipeline needed to generate electricity or is it needed as a fuel to actually replace the coal do we know well, I, not really, but I would suspect both. I mean, definitely to generate electricity, but it's also uh, to heat the kilns because, you know, the steel production is very yeah. energy intensive and they used to use coal and now they are going to use uh, natural gas. The issue is... What about hydrogen? What about all the other uh, green energy that are required? And then many feel that this is a time for maybe Hamilton and every other place to see what will be the best alternative to fossil fuel and uh, to whatever is considered to be intensive emissions coming from it. It seems that they've already done that, and they've relied and and decided that electricity was the way they're going to go. Now, obviously, they just have to find a different way of generating it. Other And obviously, we don't use, in Ontario, coal to generate electricity now. So, um, obviously, uh, natural gas is is the next key ingredient there. Um, And again, the other technologies won't this bridge till we get there from what i understand we're just not there yet well to a great extent but master has done quite a bit in terms of storing you see one of the best alternative and has really become economic uh, is uh, solar energy the issue was uh, how far and how much can you store of it but increasingly batteries are now reduced in price and increasing the capacity and there is now looming on the horizon the chance of using a very clean source of energy creating really the uh, electricity we need which is hydrogen so the issue here all right, uh, we need to move off coal. Do we need to uh, tie ourselves over many years to continue to use fossil fuel that we know is the dirty fuel, no matter whether you take it as coal, oil, or uh, natural gas? We have to move towards a more sustainable future, and this is related to our ability to move off fossil fuel. I think everybody agrees agrees with that, Atif, 100%, including me. I guess the point that I'm making is is liquid natural gas is a key component to that transition, and we're seeing that with the request to build a, a you know a 14k pipeline directly to the plant. So I mean, we know we have to do that. The point is, we seem to be erasing natural gas as an opportunity and pretending that it doesn't even exist. And now we have councilors that seem very surprised that all of a sudden natural gas is needed during this transition. Again, I don't deny anything that you're saying, but it seems that a lot of people are denying that liquid natural gas is a solution in that transition from one to the other. 
Yeah, there are two questions, uh, and, and they, they are really substantive questions. One, how is this natural gas produced? Is this fracking? Uh, the uh, damage to the environment that is associated with fracking is, is, is quite uh, evident and quite serious. The other aspect is that we need a source of energy that we produce at home. We don't have to import it. I mean, there is a, quite a bit of a economic issue here is to what extent can we depend always on sources that we have to import that represent leakages from the income stream and don't create the jobs we have. And the third one is, and, and that's a very serious one. I mean, when we talk about transition, it conjures the image as if it's going to happen tomorrow or next mm -hmm. month or next year. Yeah. We're talking about a long period, and this period is so critical. We are at that cusp where if we continue to do things as we did in the past, we're going to be getting to a point where we damage the environment in a very irreversible way. Is doing things in the past, though, just uh, assuming that you can get the world off everything when you can't get them off of coal and here we are and again I, I agree with everything you say here but it seems that we're denying one of the solutions here and it, it, for something that just isn't there yet and 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 it seems that liquid natural gas has a key uh has a key part to play in the transition uh, well i i do but uh, you know how long how much are we committed i mean we're talking about a very high large investment that might tie us for years and that what really worries me and who's going to pay for it and well with all due respect with, with all due respect to chief i'm old enough to remember that you know we talked we had these same discussions 20 years ago and had we done it there then we would have been far better off than we are now wouldn't we we'd be off coal at least so again they just you know we keep hearing the same thing the same thing it's either all or nothing all or nothing when you can't get the world off of all how do you expect them or, or off just coal, how do you expect to get them off of everything? Anyway, we're out of time, Atif, and we're never going to solve this now. Uh, but thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Atif Kaberzi with us, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University, President at Echometric uh, Research and former Undersecretary to the United Nations. Atif, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. I'd say what. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We're just talking to uh, Atif Kabursi, Professor Emeritus Economics, McMaster University. And and uh, again, he's stressing the need to get off of uh, fossil fuel. And my goodness, we all know that. We know why. We, we don't need to spend more time debating what is happening. I, I think we know all of that. And, and heightening that doesn't make people buy into your idea anymore. Where the difference is, is where we find the solution. And I've been talking about um, getting the world off coal for longer than I can remember because it seems to be the absolute biggest uh, polluter. And I remember asking Elizabeth May right on this show, um, why don't we focus on getting off the world off coal? And, you know, well, it's too late for that. Well, if you can't get the world off coal, how do you get them off everything? And I understand that, you know, there's all these other alternatives that are on the horizon, but they're not there yet. And um, there's a transition period that's going to take a long time, longer than people think it is. And so it's fascinating that 
for some reason, we seem to want to go to the extremes here. And we all know the Prime Minister has said there he does not see a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas. Well, all we have to do is look at ArcelorMittal de Fasco to see the business case for natural gas. There's our own little experiment right there as we drive over the Skyway Bridge and see it. And all of the coal that's being burned. So when they announced a few months ago they were going electric, my God, what a great, like, holy smokes, this is amazing. No pun intended. But there was no mention of liquid natural gas. And I did ask the question, will we have enough power? Will Hamilton Brown, when they flick on the electric arc furnace, I was told, yes, we got lots of power. Well, obviously, we need more. And and again... All of a sudden, we announce, or Enbridge announces, they want a 14K pipeline uh, coming down roughly Centennial Parkway to go and, and, and supply this transition. Now, whether this is providing hydro for the electricity or being used as a fuel to replace the coal, it's all part of it. And it's way cleaner than coal. And I'm just amazed to no end that... When this article ran in the spec, DeFasco needs a 14-kilometer natural gas pipeline built for green steel project. Everybody's, what? 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 Did they just think that we were going to plug in a big plug? And You know, like, it's amazing to me. Uh, so anyway, all of a sudden, here we are having this discussion, and, and now it's okay, and it's fine, and, and it is. I think this is a grand idea. But even with the professor, it's like nobody seems to want to admit that there's going to be a period of time, probably longer than we think, where we're going to need liquid natural gas to do that. And I remember the prime minister standing up and bragging, you don't see Russia doing this, you don't see China. Well, they don't have Niagara Falls. They don't have a Pickering nuclear plant. They don't have a clean supply of liquid natural gas to to supplement all of this, including renewables. So to say that, and no mention at all about natural gas, not one mention during that news conference of clean Canadian liquid natural gas. And then off he goes. You don't see Russia doing that. Well, they don't have it. You don't see China. They don't have it. You don't see Europe. They don't have it, which is why they're asking us for it. And then, oh, guess what? We're going to dig this little pipeline just to, yeah, because you need the Canadian liquid natural gas in order to make this transition. And it's a massive one. And kudos to DeFasco for doing it. And the government's for getting behind it. But to sit in position that Canadian liquid natural gas, there is no business case. There's an example. There's a giant example. As soon as you cross the Skyway Bridge, you can look at it. There it is. There is the business case for Canadian liquid natural gas. Except just replace steel with power or countries or wherever. It's just a smaller version. And a big one at that. So kudos to, to Fasco for, for, for going through with this. 
Shame on politicians who don't want to talk about how we actually get there and what we need to do to do it. And you've got to ask yourself, the the extremist environmentalists that are constantly saying, got to get off everything, shut the tap off, shut the tap off, shut the tap off. If they're actually doing more harm than good by delaying how we do this, by refusing to look at solutions that are viable, that are efficient, that can be done now. Not 10 or 20 years ago or in the future. So it's amazing that nobody can see the business case for clean Canadian liquid natural gas, yet all levels of government are throwing all kinds of money at DeFasco to do the exact same thing. You want to see a business case for Canadian liquid natural gas? There it is. Right there next to the piles of coal. All right. <laughs> Maybe. And, and to see counselors going, <gasps> they have no idea what this transition is like. They have no idea. They just want the plug yanked. And then do what we do. Dave Woodard watching the world spin from inside the um, the newsroom. And it is spinning quite a bit today. And we didn't think it was really, you know, uh, but then boy, it started to pick up steam about midday. Uh, well, probably as soon as they opened up the doors to Toronto City Hall and, and uh, Mayor John Tory walked in. I was going to say former, but that's not the case yet. Uh, so anyway, um, to me, this is a bigger discussion and it's it's less about the politics and, and what should happen and more about uh, do people want somebody to stay in who's doing a good job for them or uh, does the moral compass say, no, that person has got to go, um, which is obviously the, the great debate that's going on now uh, at City Hall in Toronto, but it's also spilling out into workplaces and what have you. And again, less about the, the story of the mayor in Toronto and more about how our attitudes are changing. And we we just want people to get things done. And when all of a sudden there's a threat, you might lose someone like that. People, people reexamine now. Uh, let's bring in uh, Alan Hale, Queen's Park today and is with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So obviously, Alan, this is a, you know, a city hall story. It's not Queen's Park or what have you, but we've got the uh, premier speaking in. There's various politicians that have spoke up about this. How much of an impact is this Toronto municipal story having at Queen's Park? Well, it is quite a uh, it is quite had a, quite a big impact here in the uh, in Queens Park. Uh, it seems to have taken over just about everything. Uh, we had uh, this big uh, revelation on Friday that um, sort of get fed into this um, story about uh, the premier and his relationship with uh, property developers who have. Um, um, uh, who have benefited from the changes to the green belts that the government has uh, been making. And that story just got completely blown clean out of the water. It was just like it was going to be the head, the top story of the day, and it just wasn't anymore. And I bet uh, I believe the government was was really thankful for that <laughs> for for that in one sense. But I'm, they are also clearly not looking forward to the prospect of losing John Tory at City Hall, though. So how does that change business at Queen's Park? Like again, we all know he's, he's got the, you know, he's hold, he's holding court there in Toronto, but how does it affect municipal politics or sorry, provincial politics, obviously with it being the biggest city? Well, it does change a lot of things. I mean, this was they the, the uh PC government, he really did, did think that uh Tory was like their man 
in uh, City Hall in in Toronto. Like having him there uh, definitely made them feel a lot better that they could get their uh, their vision for a lot of different areas, especially on housing uh, passed and implemented in the way that they were hoping it would be. Um, they trusted him so much that when he asked for those uh, strong mayor powers that uh, your listeners are probably uh, from, uh, probably heard about, uh, the ability to pass bylaws with a minority vote on council and to draft the budget himself. And those were things that John Tory himself asked Premier Ford for. And he gave them to, he gave them, to them. And um, now... Uh, if uh, Tory leaves, those powers are going to go to somebody else and they might not be as conducive to what the government uh, wants for its agenda and how it how it would be implemented by the uh, province's biggest city. Do we know yet if those powers are going to transfer to the next mayor? I'm not sure if that's going to happen or not. Oh, they'll um, definitely transfer to the next mayor. They're in law. Like the, uh, right. the powers belong to the mayor's office. Oh, maybe I was uh, thinking the deputy mayor while but, she took uh, over. That, maybe that's that what it was. A, yeah, that yeah, yeah. I don't okay. know the answer to that. If a yeah. from mayor will get those powers, but yeah. the, whoever is elected the next mayor one, yeah. after Tory will definitely get them. And you can see that the the premier is uh is a bit worried about it because he was talking today about how what how much of a disaster it would be if a lefty mayor got yeah. into Toronto <laughs> and how we'd all be toast if there was a lefty mayor elected in Toronto. <laughs> he said that this morning. I bet he wish he could take that one back. All right, do parties have, and we know that, you know, we've heard that he's got his uh, candidate if, if Tory does end up going. I'm not sure he's going to yet. Uh, do parties of all stripes have a preferred candidate that they want in there? Is that the sort of discussion that would be had at Queen's Park? Well, that's definitely a discussion every, that is happening for sure. Um, we know that um, they definitely, like I was saying, they really do want uh, somebody uh, with the same sort of conservative inclination as um, as the uh, government in power, obviously. Right. So they want someone who's conservative. Uh, and we are talking, so, and there's been a lot of like talking about who that would be. Um, so they want like one conservative leaning um, candidate to run to take all of the uh, right leaning voters. And so it doesn't get it split. And it seems like people like the PC strategists are sort of um, coalescing around Councillor Brad Bradford, who was mm-hmm. interesting because he's actually the um, he's actually the son of a liberal MP. Uh, but um, wow, but, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but and he doesn't really con- he doesn't really vocally, you know, go around calling himself a conservative. But he does seem to have the pedigree they're looking for and the like right opinions. So that is what about opposite? They are going to be pushing. What about opposition, Alan? Do they have a, a preferred candidate at this point? No. And that's a question we did ask um, the new official opposition leader, Merritt Stiles, this morning, is if she's worried at all that there's going to be a big uh, split on the uh, left uh, that you know the conservative right wants to avoid on their side, if there'll be lots of different progressive candidates that will then split that vote and then we'll just get, uh, I guess, John Tory 2.0 which is what, you know, the conservatives strategists are hoping will be the result of that election. So nothing so far. I haven't heard anything about uh, who, if they're going to try to do something similar, find one like horse to back and then, you know, try race them to the finish. But yeah. uh, it might happen. Uh, but it would have to be a consensus by a lot of different people with a lot of different like ideas about what to do and 
uh, I don't know, it might be a harder thing to do on the left than on the right. Alan Hale with us, Queen's Park today, talking about uh, the mayor's action in Toronto bubbling over into Queen's Park and its effect there. Alan, thanks for the time. Be well. Uh, Thank you so much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. After days of shooting down unidentified objects, fighter jets from the United States and Canada were scrambled Monday night to intercept four Russian military aircraft as they buzz North American airspace. This is apparently nothing new. The North American Aerospace Defense Command, which detected the group comprised of Russian long-range bombers and fighter escorts as it approached Alaska, uh, painted the incident as a normal occurrence and did not pose a threat, and NORAD also dismissed the Russian flights as unrelated to the string of suspected balloons shot down uh, in the skies uh, over North America. To talk more about all of this, Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Program Coordinator, Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and Monk School, University of Toronto, and with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, Scott. Hope you are, too. So is this just a normal occurrence? Is this normal stuff? They're just buzzing around the perimeter, making sure everything's okay? Is this routine flights? Well, it is uh, not unusual for uh, the aircraft of one power to fly up to the airspace of the other and just see what happens. Generally, they're escorted away. Uh, the, but we have seen a, a flurry of such activities in the last few days. There's the, uh, the incident over Alaska. The uh, the Russian bomber over uh, approaching uh, Polish uh, airspace that was uh, escorted away by uh, by Dutch fighters, the um, the two Russian uh, bombers over the Norwegian Sea north of the UK. So all of this taken together is uh, is a, is a little out of the ordinary. Uh, it's it's it is too early to tell if it's related to this flurry of. Uh, of as yet unidentified objects that have been downed over uh, Canadian and uh, and uh, and U.S. soil because we simply ha- don't know what uh, what the provenance and the capabilities of those devices are. We don't know if they're balloons, if they're if they're drones of some sort. Uh, we just don't know where they come from or if there's any connection yet. And given the difficulty of finding and retrieving those uh, those items, uh, it may be a while before we do. We remember that the first one that came in uh, through Canada and then Montana and out and was eventually shot down over the the coastline of the Carolinas uh, was a Chinese surveillance balloon. Obviously, these smaller, much lower, and don't have the capabilities of, and also we don't know the origins of. Is it just a sheer coincidence that we're t- when we're talking about protecting uh, northern airspace and this sort of thing that they just happen to be buzzing around, or does this lead someone to? believe that maybe that's where these crafts came from well it depends on on uh, on how new a development this is now there are two possibilities here and neither of them is reassuring one is that this has going on been going on for a while and we haven't been aware of it that would be concerning that would point to inadequate defenses on our part the other is it does represent a stepping up of activity and the question would be why is somebody testing our defenses testing our response capabilities prior to some sort of military action, whether China over Taiwan or Russia escalation over Ukraine. Uh, Those are possibilities. I think the most likely explanation is it's simply an 
simply uh, an attempt to uh, to intimidate on the on the part of uh, Russia to the extent that they're responsible. Uh, after all, Putin is coming up on the first anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine, and it's not been going well. Even as we speak, NATO's defense ministers are meeting in Brussels talking about what to do next. So he may feel uh, inclined to uh, indulge in a little bit of saber rattling. Uh, the lots of talk of jet fighters lately. We remember this discussion at the at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, not a NATO country, so that wasn't uh, obviously an option. There's been more and more chatter about that. Do you think because of the chatter of possibility, uh, uh, more talk about maybe even supplying uh, jets for Ukraine and such, that that is part of all of this? I think mean, it could be. Uh Putin is certainly uh, certainly unhappy about the extent to which the West has been aiding Ukraine, and he would he would regard the provision of jet fighters as probably uh, further provocation. So that could very well be part of his calculation. I would actually be surprised if it weren't. Uh, that being said, um, now that we are seeing or perhaps seeing more jet activity from Russia, will this encourage NATO to keep having the discussion about perhaps maybe involving jet fighters? Well, that depends how uh, steely the nerves of our uh, respective defense ministers are. Do they uh, dismiss this as empty saber rattling or are they in fact intimidated by it? Uh, that's uh, that's what it all hinges on. Uh, personally, I think uh, whether we provide jet fighters or not, as I was just saying to a colleague, this is uh, this is already a proxy war. Now we've managed to uh, stay out of it by not uh, by not sending forces of our own, by not sending fighters of our own. Uh, but uh, it is it is it is a proxy war. We're we're engaged, and uh, Putin isn't happy about it. Uh, obviously, we knew about getting back to the balloons, the first one, uh, China, the, the last three. We don't know uh, about that. Um, we do know that the technology was much less, that these didn't appear to be a threat in any way, uh, perhaps as the first one was. Um, some are saying perhaps the reaction to take those last three down too severe. What are your thoughts on that? I don't think it's too severe at all. I think we should uh, we should demonstrate that we're perfectly capable of defending our airspace where there are uh, where there are doubts about that. Uh, it's striking that uh, nothing has been intercepted by Canadian forces as of yet by Canadian fighters. Uh, now, and that's not surprising given the uh, given given the law of averages and how many assets in NORAD the Americans have versus us. But uh, it's an indication of the extent to which we've neglected uh, our air defenses. The uh, the last uh, serious upgrade was 1985. We need to do better. We need to up our game. We need to up our defenses. Uh, do you think there is a chance that eventually um, um, military aircraft will be used in Ukraine, uh, as you said, as we approach the anniversary of? I think it's uh, very likely. I'll be surprised if if they're not engaged within uh, within the next few months. Do you see an escalation after that, or because many are afraid of that? What are your thoughts? Well, Putin is uh, hard to predict. I suspect he's a fundamentally rational actor, and uh, and wouldn't do anything uh, crazy. But uh, 
unfortunately, anything we say about him is somewhat uh, somewhat speculative. He's a, he's, a, he's, a, he's a man of dubious judgment. He's a creature of, uh, of impulses and resentments. And that does add an, an, a disturbing element of unpredictability into his behavior. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History, Trinity College and Monk School from the University of Toronto, commenting on the conflict in the skies uh, around the world. Uh, Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Obviously, uh, you have seen uh, what has happened and, and, and the devastation, the the tragedy, the and in some cases, extreme heroics uh, out of Turkey and Syria after the devastating earthquake that has claimed thousands and thousands of lives. Now, the eastern food market in Hamilton says it will be matching donations that customers make to help out from Hamilton. Dawood Nadim Yunus is with us, Innovation Officer for Eastern Food Market and is with us now. Dawood, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you, Scott. Hope you're well as well. So tell everybody about Eastern Food Market in Hamilton, where it is, and, and, and if they've never been in, what it's like. Absolutely. I mean, like, we've been across from Lime Ridge Mall for over 20 years now. Uh, but we used to be in that little alley behind Beverly Tires, and now we're mm. uh, uh, nice and visible uh, next to Canada Computers and uh, David's Bridal. You know, we're a halal grocery store. And we have a lot of specialty groceries from the Middle East, uh, from India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, as well as a wide selection of halal meats, uh, whether that's steak, chicken wings, uh, or some lamb. So tell us about how this fundraiser has started and the matching uh, of donations. Obviously, this is something that's hitting your clientele extremely hard. Uh, How are you helping out? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, like we've got, you know, not just our clientele, but a lot of the folks on our staff uh, originate from Syria. Uh, And, you know, their family and friends that are back home have been dealing with, you know, one calamity or the other. So we decided uh, in this time, right, to match any any contributions that, you know, people, locals are giving. We're going to be matching that and then giving that to Islamic Relief Canada, which actually has, you know, people on the ground. uh, So it's very clear what work they've been able to do so far. What's some of the response that you've heard from both your staff and and your customers? Because obviously this must be the buzz around the store. I I mean, absolutely. Uh, This isn't the first time that we've done something like this. And, uh, you know, just like before, not not only is the staff, you know, they're they're happy and they're proud, you know, to be working at Mm -hmm. an organization where, you know, we're able to give back to the community here and to the community abroad. Uh, and the, the and it's not just customers that have been coming in and you know contributing. You know we've had several people that have come in. They just heard one way or the other. They came, they donated, uh, and they said uh, have a great day. Uh, so it, you know that sort of reinforcement and positivity from the community is it's honestly it's uh, it, it really makes us feel positive. When did you start this? How long do you hope to keep it going? Uh, I mean to be honest, we we started it you know just a couple of days ago. Uh, and then it went on Twitter, and from there uh, we're here. Uh, but uh, we want our, our plan is to keep doing this up until the end of uh, end of February. And if people want to contribute, what do they do? How do they help out? Whether it's in store, or what do we do? 
uh, the, the way that we're doing it is just completely in store, you know, whether you're in cashing out some other items, uh, but at the till, uh, they'll ask you how much you'd like to contribute. Uh, and then you contribute whatever you're able to, you know, whether that's a dollar, 50 cents or 50 bucks. Uh, that's uh, up to, you know, what, what we're able to do. And what about, have you heard from any family or relatives who are reasonably close to this and what is going on? What have you heard? What are you hearing back from there? Um, well, what we're hearing back is, you know, some folks, their family back home has been fortunate. Um, you know, they, they might have had some property damage, but they themselves are, are safe. Some folks have had family that are in the hospital and some folks have had family that have uh, passed away. So, you know, it really is, uh, you know, from what I know, entirely the circumstance of where somebody was at that time. Right. And how, how close they were mm. uh, to the zones. But, you know, even people that are not you know, living in the immediate vicinity, uh, the entire region has been affected. Uh, you know, and last I checked, like the, the damage to just the infrastructure and uh, and the property there was over 80 billion. Right. So, you know, this is something that I think will take the, the communities there uh, some time and, and some effort to recover from. And once again, give us Eastwood Food Market, uh, sorry, Eastern Food Market's address in Hamilton. So if people want to show up and help, they can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's at 920 Upper Wentworth Street, across from Limeridge Mall between uh, David's Bridal and Canada Computers. Uh, and then we're also matching donations at the Niagara Falls location. That's at 4465 Drummond Road. All right, there you have it. Uh, if you want to help out and do your part, uh, Eastern Food Market in Hamilton, 920 Upper Wentworth Street, right across from Lime Ridge, uh, taking donations and we'll match them and send them off. Dawood and Nadim Yunus with us, Innovation Officer for Eastern Food Market. Way to pay it back. Thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Thank you, and thank you for having me, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, remember Andrea Horbath, uh, of course, MPP in Hamilton and leader of the uh, provincial New Democratic Party, steps down and runs for mayor, uh, gets it and leaves the seat open for someone to replace. And the candidates are Luciana Yanatuono from the Green Party, as well as Sarah Jama from the NDP, uh, Deirdre Pike from the Liberals and Pete Wisner from for the progressive conservatives, uh, all running to take the place, uh, left the seat, left vacant when Andrea Horvath uh, ran for mayor. Let's bring in Peter Grant, professor of political science, McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, thanks. Hope you're well, too. How much attention do you think this will generate uh, in this by-election, which normally don't, but this is obviously a higher-profile seat with uh, it being once uh, Andrea Horvath's? Yeah, although once Andrea Horvath, uh, you know, retires and is no longer the the head of the Ontario NDP, I think it loses a fair mm. bit of its interest uh, beyond the limits of the city. Uh, you know, I think it will it will be most interesting only if there's uh, you know a change in in the party that uh, that holds the seat. Otherwise, uh, you know, maybe the biggest thing will be if uh, John Turmel runs again, and uh, you know, see if he's maybe lucky on his 105th try. But you know, otherwise, I think. You know, people watching Ontario politics will see, you know, from the results, a, a bit of a sense of how's the population feeling about the Ford government and the different opposition parties. Uh, but I think that will probably be the the extent of it. Is there a favorite at this point? How much does name recognition play? Well, I mean, 
I think for the most part, uh, you know, elections are determined based on people voting for parties. Uh, by elections, the personalities maybe become a bit more important. Uh, but even here, uh, you know, it's not clear that any of the, the candidates to date are, you know, necessarily that much better known in the community than the others. Uh, you know, they all have their own, uh, you know, histories of service in the community that will be, you know, interesting to voters. But it's not like so far anyway that, uh, you know, we have a celebrity in the race or someone who has, you know, achieved uh, a great acclaim who's who's coming to run. I think we've got candidates who probably respond to the the desires of uh, the party members that uh, chose them to, to run in this election. So do we just assume that uh, the NDP will hang on to this seat? Well, I mean, uh, I think that's the most likely outcome. Uh, yeah. It's one of the safer NDP seats in, in the whole of, I mean, federally in the whole of Canada and provincially uh, in Ontario. Uh, you know, some of that uh, in Ontario has to do with the fact that Andrea Horvath was a leader and, and perhaps uh, received a bit of extra support that way. Although that can play, you know, both ways because she was also not that present in the riding, um, you know, during the campaigns because she was off, you know, doing the leader's tour. Um, but yeah, I would say that that's, uh, you know, the most likely outcome. I mean, uh, parts of the riding have been held in, you know, recent memory by liberals. Uh, so, you know, the Liberal Party might have a chance, except, you know, at the moment, they aren't at their strongest provincially. It's not really mm. clear what the, the Liberal Party would be standing for. Uh, going forward. So it's a bit of a tough spot, I think, to be the Liberal candidate. Uh, the Conservatives, I think, look at places like Hamilton Centre as potential gross uh, spots for themselves, uh, making appeals to, you know, working class Ontarians, trying to see if you can, you know, make a sort of division within the NDP uh, coalition uh, between sort of middle class professionals and a more working class base. Um, you know, maybe they've had a bit of success in areas like uh, Windsor with that kind of strategy. Uh, you know, we'll see if they try to run it here in this by-election campaign. Any real reason for change here from the constituents' perspective? Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not sure that it's really that clear uh, that there would be one. Hmm. Uh, you know, if you're happy with the Ford government, you're not really unelecting that government. Um uh, you know, by by or you're doing much to change that by electing another conservative. So I, I suspect there's not a big push that way. Uh, if you're unhappy with that government, you're presumably looking to one of the opposition parties. And uh, you know, if, uh, if it's a riding that traditionally has looked at the NDP out of uh, the choice between the NDP and the Liberals, uh, you know, there's maybe not a lot of reason to change. Again, particularly with the Liberal Party not being that clear who the leader is and what position that leader is going to take going forward. Biggest issues for this race? Well, you know, again, I think a lot of it uh, probably comes down to local representation because, you know, what's happening in Queen's Park isn't really going to change with this, you know, with this by-election. Um, and so, you know, you may choose a uh, a candidate to take certain issues to, to Queen's Park, but ultimately I, I suspect uh, the parties at Queen's Park are going to continue regardless of what people, you know, choose to do. So in many ways, I think it, it has to do with the, who does the people in the riding feel comfortable uh, being being their representative there. I mean, people will obviously, I think, be concerned uh, in this race about housing as, uh, you know, an important uh, provincial issue. The question of urban boundary has been uh, quite contentious, uh, you know, in Hamilton. I suspect that's also likely uh, going to cover uh, or color uh, some of it. I mean, we'll see. I mean, the Conservatives might, in running a police officer, decide to really make this a 
kind of a cultural culture wars kind of campaign in which case yeah, you know public safety might uh, uh and policing might come a bit more prominent than they usually are in a, a provincial by-election campaign peter grant with us professor of political science mcmaster university peter as always thanks for the time be well and you too you know what? We've had enough about talking about uh, uh, politicians and divisiveness and, and, and behavior and what have you. All right. Let's uh, uh, let, let's hark back to the 1960s. And uh, if I say the name Raquel Welch, what do you think of? Uh, do, does it go in one ear and out the other? Or do you go, oh, yeah, I remember her. Uh, Raquel Welch, a veteran actress who rose to fame in the 1960s in the films One Million Years B.C. and Fantastic Voyage, has passed away at the age of 82, according to a statement provided by her manager. Uh, perhaps one of the most beautiful women in uh, motion pictures and and so on and so forth. And I was surprised to learn that she was in 70 motion pictures because I can only think of two. But let's bring in Bill Brio, TV critic and author. And of uh, you can find out more at BrioTV.com. He is with us now. Bill, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. Scott, how are you? I'm doing very well. So when I think of Raquel Welch, I really can't think of a movie that she was in. But then as I read this, I realized I remember watching this with my parents when I was a kid about a fantastic voyage when they shrunk people and then shoved them into a, like injected them <laughs> into a person's body. Uh, and then, of course, one million years B.C., um, my father had a poster of Raquel Welch in her uh, fur bikini over his workbench in the house I grew up with. <laughs> That's how I remember Raquel Welch. What comes to mind when you think of her? Well, yeah, your dad was typical of many, many uh, red-blooded uh, <laughs> North American men uh, in the 60s and 70s. Right? You know, she really defined sex symbol. You know, when you thought of a sex symbol at, at that era 50 years ago, Raquel Welch, absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, that was, um, you know, and, and she did make other movies. I, when I was young, I was an usher at the Kingsway Theater in, in Etobicoke. And I remember Kansas City Bomber, a, a movie about mm. her as a roller derby queen. And Yes, you know, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, she, you know, and then she was pretty good in that one. Mother Jugs and Speed, you know, and there's yes. a, a title you may not yes. get away with today, but Bill Cosby was in that. Another reason not to watch, but uh, she did do a lot of films. I was surprised to hear it was so many at uh, at 70, that is. But again, the ones you mentioned, oh, yes, I remember those uh, quite well. The, the thing that was different about her, she didn't seem to be the ditzy woman or the blonde similar to what a Marilyn Monroe character would play. No, yeah, she um, was statuesque. She was stunning, uh, but, yeah, she didn't play the dumb uh, blonde, which was a typical uh, stereotype back then. Um, you know, and she was in some other serious films. The Last is Sheila. Not a bad film uh, in the early 70s, sort of a murder mystery film, a whodunit. Uh, she's one of the, the uh, characters in that one. But, yeah, you know, and you'd see her on all these variety shows. She'd be on the Sonny and Cher show or hmm. whoever. And, uh, you know, uh, she was certainly in demand because she drew ratings. And where, where I really remember her, Scott, was at the Academy Awards because she would always be in the 70s one of the presenters. And uh, one year in particular, she was asked to read for the presenting for the uh, best documentary category. And she read this one, the title of the movie, also nominated Gravity is My Enemy. 
And <laughs> honest to God, it's a true story. The, oh, the crowd at the wherever that was, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, started to uh, titter and laugh, if you'll pardon the expression. Do you think if she was an actress later in life, because she talked about how, you know, when she hit 40, the sex symbol, she was kind of, there, there wasn't much time left for her. Do you think if she was an actress nowadays, she'd be working uh, past her 40s, 50s, 60s? Well, that's a great question. You know, it's funny she wasn't on Dynasty or Dallas. You know, a lot mm -hmm. of uh, actresses of a certain age, you know, Joan Collins in particular, you started to see them on shows like that. And uh, she would, you would think that she was somebody that would have come to mind for those kinds of roles. So I don't know if she was just typecast in a different way. She did a film, Myra Breckenridge Ridge, that, uh, you know, was kind of savaged by critics. And um, yeah, she just didn't have that extended career like Joan Rivers or Linda Evans did. Do we have uh, these types of actresses today? Are there sex symbols today? Nah, you know, it's a different world. You know, you've got Pamela Anderson is back now with a documentary. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's 55, I think. Um, and she's starting to, uh, you know, she's she's trying different things. She was on Broadway. She's done different things. So, um, but just to be sort of still a, a sex symbol, I think that's an idea that just in this woke age uh, doesn't really fly anymore. And she seems to be the last one, or maybe I'm just dating myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I'm sure uh, we could have other examples, but yeah. um, really when I'm thinking of who are the actresses today, it's just a different world, uh, Scott. You know, like it, the, you're, I don't know how many people have the those pictures pinned up, who they are now on their workbench. Um, but, uh, yeah, back in our day, Raquel Welch and add a picture of her in the newspaper that was porn before the internet. Hmm. Yeah. Good point. Uh, so, uh, you, as you said, she seemed to be, uh, once she became popular was on a, a lot of the variety shows, a lot of, uh, uh, talk shows, that sort of thing. And, and I don't want to get too de uh, deep into the weeds or, or into the dirty weeds here, but there was always a story that she was on Johnny Carson one time and Johnny Carson said something that was kind of inappropriate. Uh, is there any truth to any of those stories whatsoever? I wrote a book called Truth and Rumors uh, that debunked a lot of those myths. Uh, and if you go on Amazon and pay an awful lot of money, you'll find an out of print copy. But uh, no, uh, to, to be I was sorry to dash hopes. The, that rumor was associated with Jane Fonda, Raquel Welch. Um, and I don't know if it's a story I can clean up on the radio. I actually asked Ed McMahon once if it was true, and he said, oh, oh yes, oh, oh. You know, and then, then I asked the producer of The Tonight Show, and he's like, no, Ed Ed was drunk. No, that didn't. So, so it didn't happen, but, yeah, uh, the, the story had her with a cat on her lap, and mm -hmm. Johnny, of course, asked her a question, and she said something. Um, I don't know if your radio listeners, even in 2023, are ready for that one, Scott. I hear you. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, we'll leave it at that. Why not take the higher road there? Uh, that being said, uh, is is there anything to be learned from her career in the sense that we have moved on? It's a different era now. Um, do we look at female actresses a lot different than we did then? Oh, of course. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, I think um, 
just just struggling to find sort of a contemporary uh, example. You know, like um, and Raquel Welch could sing and dance. She was multi talented, but it was just back then she was so typecast as strictly a sex symbol that I don't think mm-hmm. the opportunities would come her way. You know, uh, did her look set her back in that respect? I, I, She's maybe, too, you know, but you know, let's be fair. Her, her talent as an actress was limited. I don't think she yeah, was yeah. going to win an Oscar. Um, but everybody wanted to see her at the Oscars, and and I, I just think the lesson is more. Here we are talking again. Look at just the last week or two: Cindy Williams, uh, Bobby Hall, yeah. David Crosby. A lot of heroes mm-hmm. uh, are just passing now that uh, we grew up with, and uh, others. Um, and so it's just a uh, sad, you know, because they keep keep coming every couple of days, don't they? Yeah, that's so true. All right. Bill Brio with us, TV critic and author Brio.tv to find out more. Bill, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. He is coming up after the six o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. It's Scott Radley. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. well I'm doing just fine. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, what do you want to chat about today? There's so many things that are going on that I, I don't know. It's Wednesday. I'm to the point where I'm kind of burnt out about all of them. Uh, where is your show going tonight? Well, I'll tell you one of the people we're talking about tonight uh, in the second hour. There is a documentary that's out now. You can find it online. It aired already, but I was out of the country. So uh, we're doing the talking about it because you can still watch it about Harold mm-hmm. Ballard. Wow, and I haven't seen this. What's this like? It is, it's an amazing, well, see, you and I, and I think a lot of people listening are of the age that we remember Harold Ballard. And yep. yet, it's amazing. I was I was thinking today, um, the stuff that Harold Ballard did when you watch this documentary, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a different time. Not just the, yeah. not just running a team into the ground, um, <laughs> but, but. He he said stuff and he did stuff that, yeah. You know, there, there is an interview in the um, in the documentary, and, pe- and as I say, people can go and watch this documentary after we talk about it tonight. But there's an interview in the documentary they keep going back to in which he is being interviewed by Adrian Clarkson way before she was a governor general and spending all of our money. Uh, she was mm. once upon a time a reporter of sorts, and there are things that he says in this interview. That in 2023, if he said that to, well, anybody, but especially a female journalist, you'd go, "Holy cow!" You, you like you forget forget yeah. losing your team. You may go to jail, and and <laughs> yet, it, it, like there is laughter going on, and he's got this big smile on his face. He's, but here's the interesting part about this: I think that Harold Ballard is perceived vastly differently in Hamilton than he is in Toronto. Because of his ownership, why is of the that? Tie, because of his ownership of yeah, the tie cats. I, I remember, I remember very vividly when he put the tie cat logos along the yeah. boards at Maple yeah. Leaf Gardens, and everybody was flipping out. Right, but he he. But I guess if you're the, in the hammer, you love that. But yeah, he drove the Leafs into the ground. But he spent all kinds yeah. of money and won championships with the tie cats, and he was a model. Yeah. Well, I don't know about a model owner, but a, a a good owner for the team. And so I think that people in Hamilton, and I could be wrong on this one. I think people in Hamilton and think very differently about Harold Ballard than they people in Toronto do. 
I think that's a very valid point, uh, and I can completely see why. That being said, I'm not sure he was a model citizen by. Uh, I didn't say model citizen. I didn't say model citizen. Standards. I said model owner. If you're talking about spending money on your team and making yeah, sure yeah. they win, uh, and even when I say model owner, I don't mean all the other stuff that came with it. Just the hey, we won championships, so people are happy with that. How long did it take for the Leafs to get over his era, or are they still trying? <laughs> Have they won a championship since? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Have they won a series? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> I know. I, I think that there is still, well, I mean, look, for clearly, um, what year did he die? Uh, I can't remember exactly now. But um, Clearly, in the time that he owned them, he turned them from champions into the absolute joke of the yeah, league. Yeah. And while things are certainly much better now, they're still not able to get back to where they were prior to him taking over. And, that, you know, obviously now since he's gone, it's not his fault entirely. But you think of how many years did it take and how much effort did it take to undo the stuff that happened there? And it's, and, and I do think that not today, but I do think for a lot of years, there was some element of this that the, the, the rebuilding, the, the getting back on track, it took years to untangle what Harold Ballard did. Uh, is anybody interested in this, or is oh, it like yeah. you said? If, if is it uh, Torontonians who have perhaps a negative aspect, no, a negative think, look, or is it? I think anyone. Uh, well, put it this way: I think anyone who was alive during the Harold Ballard era, yeah. uh, it, it was impossible not to be aware of Harold Ballard. He was in the news all the time. Uh, anyone would be interested in watching this, and if you're too young to remember, it would be fascinating. I think to watch this because you simply will not believe this could have happened. That's that's in <laughs> retrospect. That's how absolutely crazy the whole Harold Ballard era was. Anyway, it's uh, it's a fascinating documentary, and also a different time when it comes to team ownership as well. One guy having so much control. I mean, those days are gone now too. Well, in some places, I mean, there's mm, lots good of point. Jerry Jones with the Dallas Cowboys. Now he's not. Harold Ballard, I don't mean that, but I mean, there are still lots of one owner teams, guys who have billions of dollars. Um, so, it, you know, and, and any one of the, the difference is that if you were to do today the stuff that Harold Ballard did, the league, and we've seen this happen, the league would step in and force you to sell the team or do something else. They don't want the hassle. Back then, Harold Ballard was able to do whatever the heck he wanted, and there didn't see, there was no mechanism within the league to do anything about it, so you just let him do it. You just let him do it. Scott Radley, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And, of course, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. More on the Harold Ballard story. Scott, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. And, by the way, very sad mm. day in the Radley household today because I heard you talking about Raquel Welsh before this. Yes. My sister's name is Raquel. So we're, there's, there's weeping. Was she in, named after her? Well, see, we, I, I don't believe so. I don't believe so. And I don't think she, but my, I think my parents may have heard the name and liked yeah, it, but they didn't yeah. go, oh, Raquel Welsh, let's make one no, of those. But no, I don't I, think, no, I don't think you would necessarily want to name her after Raquel no, Welsh. I didn't want to leave that, but, but that's where the name came, because it was a popular name at that time, right? Well, I, I don't know if it was a popular name to name just like someone. Scott, Just like Scott was in the 60s. Was it? See, until I was about 20, I don't think I knew anyone else named Scott. And now I know everybody named Scott. Apparently the whole station is named Scott. <laughs> or, or Will. Will. <laughs> All right. That's it for us. Have a good one, dude. Thanks. See ya.
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, if America has a space force, I feel it's time for Canada to now develop their own balloon force. 